Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me right now, I have, this man is a part of one of the best British R&B groups that came out in the 90s with hit singles such as Love Guaranteed, Love to Love, Forever, which was the first single that caught the attention of Simon Cowell by Steve Mack and Wayne Hector, who was in Rhythm and Bass. And also, they did a cover of Eric Clapton's Wonderful Tonight. And if you've seen the show The Big Reunion back in 2014, they reappeared, and they've been killing crowds ever since. But he's also doing work with at-risk youth in the UK with TLG, the Luminality Group. We're going to get into all that and more with a man, Andre Harriet from Damage. Andre, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, my man. That is an absolute beautiful introduction. Bless you. Thank you so much. Man, I appreciate you um coming on to the podcast. And also, big shout out to KG from Emanate for hooking this up. Absolutely. Thank you, KG. We uh, Our wives know each other, so it was a perfect, perfect way to make it happen. All right. Now we're going to go ahead and jump right into it. Now, were you born and re reared in the UK, or did you immigrate over to the UK? And also, what were some of your musical influences before getting into Damage? So born in the United Kingdom, I come from a lineage of Jamaican, African uh, family um, and musical influences for me. Uh, my dad is a DJ here in the United Kingdom um, and I, I, I kind of grew up around lovers rock, reggae, um, classic soul, uh, pop, um, gospel, um, rare grooves, you know, as, as, a, as a black British child, it's kind of the influence of Car the Caribbean, Africa, America, uh, Soka. So there's a lot of different influences. Yeah, because I was looking at the movie Babylon and they were talking about how the sound system and the reggae culture is huge in the UK. Because like you stated earlier, a lot of parents from the Caribbean immigrated over to the UK and brought reggae with them. 100%. So my dad is one of the one of the individuals that was very uh, influential in the importation of Jamaican music uh, or reggae music into the United Kingdom. And he still, um, you know, plays a, a weekly radio show uh, in the United Kingdom, in America and various places. So, yeah, the, the reggae sound system, again, I, I, it was very influential in my early life and it's still very influential now. I love sound systems and I love the culture. Mm -hmm. And as we all know here in the States, hip hop wouldn't be where it is without the influence of reggae like DJ Cool Herc, who took the sound system culture and the clashes and the matching it up over to the States. And then they brought it in. Hip hop is where it is now. I, I love it. I saw it. Um... A, a tiny bit of uh, footage the other day, Buster was doing an interview and Buster Rhymes was saying, look, remember, you know, Cool Herc was influential in bringing it. And I think he said the um, the Latinos or the uh, somebody else was influential in the graffiti, but it was the Jamaican DJ stuff that really contributed to the, the way people toasted and did, etc. So I like that he recognized that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was very Caribbean, Jamaican, Latinx and African-Americans that pretty much took hip hop and made it a global phenomenon. Now, being over in the UK, for those of you that don't know, R&B radio was not commercially available in the UK back in the day on BBC Extra. You would have yeah. to sneak underground and listen to Kiss FM or whatever pirate station would pop up. Kiss FM, yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me about how those underground stations help spread the love of R&B to the UK when pretty much Capital and BBC was pretty much like what Top 40 radio would be here in America. So look, there's always been a long history of pirate radio stations in the United Kingdom. But I mean, I'll speak specifically to my knowledge and my generation, which was the the formation of or of a uh, Choice FM, which was a mainstream radio station, um, Choice FM ninety six point nine, which really contributed to the to the the introduction of R and B, hip hop, soul, reggae on a, on a national scale in the United Kingdom. So you know, people like Joe Dassey and Shy. Um, you know, right over to reggae, Budja Banton, Maxi Priest, uh, going up to hip hop, people like uh, Das Effects and, uh, you know, Early Buster, Fushnikins, all of that stuff was played in the early 90s on this station called Choice FM. And what then happened is it enabled us to build a community, build shows. That's when you have people like Onyx flying in for shows, you know, Jodeci flying. And I mentioned those people because I went to those gigs. 
um, you know, and then that led to the jar rules coming in, etc. And then that led to record labels, major labels saying, hold on, there's money to be made here. These people are filling out venues and they started doing deals with British artists and then the rest is history. Yeah, and it's funny how you mentioned with Pirate Radio that you guys had first dibs at a lot of the acts that became huge over here in the States before they cracked over like Sade, Loose Ends, Soul to Soul, 52nd Street, Lisa Stansfield. And Absolutely. that pretty much carried that lineage of great artists that came out of the UK. It did. And I think it's great that you mentioned Brand new that. heavies as well. Brand new heavies as well. People like Donny, people like Omar. You know, I know that Omar has done stuff with, I think, Erica Badu in the past and other people. So there's a long lineage. You've mentioned Soul to Soul. You know, there were various people that hit in America. Uh, Damage, we had a, an introduction, but we didn't really hit uh, hard in America. But I remember us featuring in, I think, Right On magazine or one of those. And I read Right On, you know, religiously at the time. So it was a watershed moment. But yeah, you know, the, the British export has always been major in America. And um, it still goes on to this day, for sure. Yeah, because I still bang that Teddy Riley Keep On Moving remix that he did for Soul to Soul. Still is and a banger to this day. Now, how much money did you end up spending on those US imports as a kid? Wow. So <clears throat> interestingly, I, I wasn't there were two areas I spent my money. I, I became a DJ and I still DJ now. So I spent a lot of money on getting the vinyl, man. You know, you had to get the right vinyl. When it popped, you had to get it early. And I remember <clears throat> doing a trip to New York and I'm going to say the name of a street. I might get it wrong, but I think it was a place called Fulton Street in, mm. in New York where I went and it was like a record. It was a street of just record stores. I flew to New York, spent a week there with a friend, and I loaded up record crates, and I came back to the UK with the hottest stuff. It was incredible. But I would spend a lot of money on Vibe magazine, Write On magazine. Um, what else would I? Yeah, those those were my two. And I had to wait. You know, when Vibe was released in America, we would have to wait maybe three weeks for it to come to the UK. So that's where a lot of my money went. And it kept me up to date, and that's how I got introduced to you know, power, power brokers in the American record industry, people like Diddy, um, who were killing it, Andre Harrell, and just what they were doing in the 90s. We didn't have black execs here. So for me, it was like, oh, my God, this is possible. So, yeah, I got a lot of energy from that. Right. And you mentioned how it took three weeks for the Vibe magazine in the U.S. to come over. This was before Internet. So the globe was huge. You really didn't know what was going on in this country. You only knew what was going on over here. Now, I mentioned in my interview with KG about Top of the Pops and how when you get on Top of the Pops, you're big time in Britain. But if you look at the history of Top of the Pops prior to Dixie Peach, there weren't really any black DJs that were hosting Top of the Pops. And can you tell us about the significance of Top of the Pops and how it is still looked at in UK lore, kind of like how we would look at Soul Train or American Bandstand in the States? Absolutely. And I'm glad you used those two reference points. So fortunately for you in America, you had Soul Train and that meant you could have people like Teddy Prendergrass, you know, you could have a whole lineage that brings you right up where you can look back and we still see images of Soul Train and, and Don right now and go, wow. But then on the other side, you had an American bandstand, um, which enabled you to play, play, play to a wider audience. Top of the Pops was our main mainstream show. So it wasn't as easy to get access to it as black musicians. And when you did, you knew you really had crossed over. You had crossed over into the mainstream population. Damage were very fortunate to have been on Top of the Pops quite a few times. And we could, you know, you could chart our trajectory. Every time you appeared on that show, sales would shoot up. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd be able to play to wider audiences. So it's definitely a fundamental part of the British music industry journey. Mm -hmm. Now, how did Damage ended up forming? Was it more like a cattle call audition? Did you all go to performing arts high school? How did Damage form? I love that. It was performing arts, absolutely. So I went to a performing arts high school on a weekend, not not all the time. Um, three of the guys went to another performing arts school and one of us was just a great singer in the local area. We formed organically. We, um, you know, we started to kind of uh, sing songs in our living room. We copied people like Boys to Men, Shy, uh, the first Jodeci album, Forever My Lady, you know, songs like Stay, Come and Talk to Me, um, and, and 
and we just did that stuff to get our sound you know <clears throat> boys to men just released um coolie high harmony and that for us was an incredible album um when they then moved on to songs like end of the road etc it was just a blueprint for us but we always wanted to keep it british we didn't want to speak american you know we, we didn't want to kind of start rapping so we just thought to ourselves what would a british energy feel like and we were really blessed to be able to convey that through our music Mm -hmm. Now, I believe the performing arts high school that two of the members of Damage went to was called Martha Speaks, and that was where Phil Collins went, correct? I think. So. Yeah, but Barbara Speaks. Barbara, Barbara Speaks. Barbara Speaks. Barbara, Speaks. Barbara, Speaks. Barbara Martha, what? I was close enough. But um, but since you guys all went to performing arts high school, can you tell yeah. me if Take That or Eminate kind of had some influence on you guys wanting to get into the business? Because Eminate, they predated a lot of the urban R&B acts that came out, paid the way for you guys, Jack the Last Swing, so on and so forth. And then Take That was the British version of New Kids. Oh, interesting. Well, so uh, yeah, I can see again parallels that you're drawing. So um, Emanate kind of came just before Damage. And I think the bands that influenced at the time, you had a group in America called, I think they were called K-Swing and they had a big track over here in the UK. Um, Emanate were just again just just ahead of Damage and had more of a new Jack swing energy, more of a hip hop energy. But we came from myself and the guys. We came from soul, lovers rock, rare groove, R and B, reggae. So we, when you put all those together, you know we were looking at people like the Jackson Five to say, well, what what were they doing? What were the Temptations doing? What was Soul to Soul doing? Um, how do you bring in a little bit of the lovers rock style, you know, how do you still be influenced by Jodeci and by Boys to Men and by those guys, but not take it all in. So, you know, when we formed, um, as I said, Emanate were, were really booming. We signed our deal. We had a longer a journey. We had, you know, we signed a, a deal with an independent label. I think Emanate were on a major label. So we had a lot more time to grow. And then bands like Take That, they were signed to the major labels and they just absolutely blew. And we were fortunate to, to, you know, to tour with some of those guys and it helped us as well. It really helped us. Yeah, because I found it interesting how Take That was huge in Britain, but they only had Back for Good, which exploded in the UK. But then Robbie Williams became a solo star here in America and Gary Barlow went on to do a solo career in the UK. And then yeah. with Eminate, they were signed to the UK division of Columbia. And when they I were. interviewed KG, he told me that they wanted to get Biggie to do a remix for their surface cover of Happy, but yeah. the execs passed. And I almost kind of felt like UK execs don't really understand how the US market works and that you gotta do some new things in order to be successful in certain territories, which is what Backstreet Boys and NSYNC learned so well, cutting their teeth in Europe first and then breaking back over here in America. So great, two great points. First of all, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC Again, being white American bands, they were able to come to the United Kingdom and come to Europe and have a lot of success. There were parts of Europe that were closed off to bands like Damage and M&A and Ultimate Chaos just because of the color of our skin. I'll be absolutely honest. We still were able to tour in those areas, but success for us was a lot harder. So when NSYNC and, and, and uh, Backstreet Boys hit here, they could go back to America, say, look what we've done in Europe. Why aren't you accepting us? Now, in terms of your reference to Biggie, uh, because we were on an independent label, we were fortunate enough for our label to see the benefit of, at the time, Junior Mafia. And we actually got Little C's on one of our first singles, which was Anything. We flew out to New York. Our video was shot by Lance Unrivera. Most people will know Lance was behind Junior Mafia and Biggie, etc. We had Little Kim at our shoot, and it was told to us that Biggie actually penned the lyrics for, for, Junior's, um, for Little C's at the time. So we were very fortunate to see Junior Mafia in the 90s, I remember they took us out to a nightclub. Again, if you want to talk about black excellence, it was the first time I saw so many brand new cars outside a nightclub. This is when Bad Boy was hitting really hard. We came back to the UK and we realised, wow, uh, you actually can do something major. And I think that really changed the way we started to view the business. So, yeah, being on an independent label meant that, unlike m &A, our label saw the benefit in us hooking up with Junior Mafia. And the label you guys are on were Big Life. Did you all do a demo for Big Life or was it more like a showcase where you had Big Life and the other big labels at the time that were bidding for you guys? 
We we did um, at the time when you were trying to become known in the nineties in the UK. You did under eighteen shows, so under eighteen would would fly into these places. Girls would be screaming, and A and R execs would come and look at who was up and coming. But we did a couple of showcases for sure. The song that got us our deal was "Stop the Love You Save" by the Jackson Five. It was sent to Big Life. They loved it. Um, they put us in the studio. Some money was put behind us, and the rest is history. The rest mm-hmm. is history. So the Forever album comes out in '97, and then the title track became a huge smash hit. And like I mentioned at the intro, it was the first big hit for Steve Mack and Wayne Hector, who were going to write songs for Westlife, Little Mix, so on and so forth. And I didn't know this till just now, upon doing my research on Wayne Hector, he was a member of Riverman Bass. Who, fun fact for those of you that don't know, recorded "Tell Me" first before Groove Theory. They did, and they also had, what was Joe's song? I'm in love. I'm in love was supposed to be the, the single for rhythm and bass. Um, I didn't know that. Absolutely, but different things happened and Joe took the song. But yeah, um, uh, we met Rhythm and Bass when they were signed again to a major and it was always our dream to be signed to a major. And I really think Damage benefited from being on the independent label. We used to look at those bands, Emanate, Ultimate Chaos, Rhythm and Bass, because they had such huge budgets, you know, they could do such amazing things. We were on a smaller label and we couldn't do that. But what we didn't know is we were given more time to really hone in our craft. So by the time we blew, because we were now the number one on the independent label, they put all their resources and energy into us. So it worked out. But Wayne Hector, we met him very young. He wrote one of our, you know, some of our first stuff, Love to Love Forever, uh, Do Me That Way on the first album. Him and Steve Mack really bonded during the damage, uh, uh, damage sound. Uh, they did Wonderful Tonight for us as well. And then Wayne Hector, and Steve Mack were courted, I would say, by Simon Cowell and Louis Walsh, who then created uh, what I say is a white version of Damage, which was Westlife. And they went on to sell 50 million albums and Wayne wrote 30 number ones globally in the rest of history. Crazy, because I ended up getting the Westlife album off the strength of Swear It All Over Again after they did the US version. So I knew who Simon was before American Idol because I had the Westlife CD and Five. And I was surprised that Five exploded here in America, but Simon had said that Bye 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 was originally intended for them, but they passed. And that's how Instinct ended up getting it because Five did the special here for Disney Channel with Bewitched. And they had uh, a lot of steam. And for those of you that don't know about Bewitched, two of the sisters in Bewitched, their brother is Shane Lynch from Boyzone. Absolutely. You know your history. But you can see in everything you're talking about, you know, especially in what I'd call now a post-George Floyd world, we can talk about racialized stories so much more openly. And I'm telling you, as, as a band of color, there were, there were opportunities that were not afforded to us. They just were not. No matter how hard we worked, no matter how talented we were, there were some blocked, blocked, missed opportunities because they we just weren't allowed to go there. Yeah, because when I look at E17, I'm like, you're just like an R&B version of Jodeci, while Take <laughs> That was more poppy, clean cut. I prefer E17 more yeah. to that because Brown Harvey, vocally, R&B all the way. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you go to Brian Harvey to this day, when I first saw him coming out, I was like, all that energy is like KC. That's like KC Haley. That's like Jojo Haley. And then you look at some others, you know, you know, just different people are influenced. But as I said, you know, I'm, 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 we are blessed as damage that 20 plus years later, we can still perform. I can still have interviews with people like yourself and people still recognize our legacy within the industry. Right, because when I look at the Love to Love video, when I see you guys on the streams, I was thinking, hmm, did Instinct look at that and say, we're going to use that for Bye Bye Bye? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> who, who knows? But who there, knows? There, there's similarity, right? Yeah, very similar. So you guys did Top of the Pops. You also did CD UK and also the Saturday morning shows like Alive and Kicking, Hey Hey, it's Saturday in Australia. And that kind of led a pipe into that teen demographic now were there ever talks with big life and then later cool tempo when you put out the sophomore album to say hey we're going to try to break you guys in america 
So yeah, I mean, we 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 did have a chance in America, but um, unfortunately, our label did a deal with an independent label in America as opposed to a major label. We went out there. I think we were in America for about three or four weeks, um, just doing some promo. That's when we featured in some of the youth magazines. I remember doing a showcase on a boat and some other stuff. But at the time, it didn't really it didn't really pop for us. Um, what we did get to experience in America, though. On our first album, we wrote songs with Herbie Lovebug. You know, Herbie, who was behind Salt and Pepper? Kid and Play. We, mm -hmm. Absolutely. We managed to have experiences like that, which to this day are incredible. Um, I already told you the story about the Junior Mafia guys, and there were lots of different American producers, people that were working with D'Angelo. So rest in peace, Dom, um, who used to manage D'Angelo. We worked with um, Anthony Hamilton, and at that time he was dating... Um, Oh, uh, uh, somebody who'd written a song for, she written Candy Rain for... Um, Soul For Real. Soul For Real, Terry Robinson, that was her name. So we were very fortunate to have got into the fabric of some of the songwriters, the movers and shakers in the 90s in America. And once again, it really shaped our view of what the music industry could be. Mm, yeah, and you mentioned rhythm bass earlier. I'm a part of this form called New Jack Swing Forever, and we have a lot of UK New Jack Swing or Swing Beat lovers. And that's where I first heard rhythm and bass. And when I heard Roses and Tell Me, I was like, why they did not take off here in America? That is beyond me. Yeah, I mean, again, who knows? But, you know, I'm a man of faith. God has different plans for different people. But all of them went on to do very well, by the way. You know, Wayne is the person who stands out as the, the international songwriter. But Ali Tennant did phenomenally well. And so did George and so did John as producers. So all four of them were blessed. Right. And another person who I thought should have had a crack in America was Lamar. Because when he put out 50-50, I thought that was really going to take him over the top over here. I mean, Lamar's still recognised now in the UK for his contribution to the UK soul music and UK music as a whole. But I hear you. I think the battle we have sometimes, uh, Jarrell, is when when England exports music, you know, kind of, when we talk about the souls and souls and stuff, that's a done deal. But when England exports music, it looks at people like Ed Sheeran, it looks at people like Adele, and Sam it kind of Smith. says... Sam Smith. It kind of says, these are our flagship artists. They sell millions and millions and millions. And then America goes, okay, this must be what you export. You all drink tea, you all hang out. And it was only until you had the, you know, the, the, the exportation of people like, uh, let's say, Skepta and the grime movement that people started going, oh, there's actually people of color in the UK that do music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know for a lot of people, when they first saw Boy in the Corner by Dizzy Rascal, they're looking like, oh, okay, this is what's going on. And then when Craig David hit over here with Born to Do It, which is like, oh, this this is what's really going on because I loved that album. The Fill Me In, Seven Days, that whole album was a straight yeah. banger. And when NSYNC did the Celebrity album, they had this one cut called, I think, The Two of Us or something like that, where it sounded pretty much like two-step. There you go. So that was, those were the early waves of coming into the States, mentioning Craig and those guys, those were the early waves. But what the grime and and, and UK garage and hip hop enabled uh, the British in industry to do was to say, there's, an, there's an, an, a voice that comes from urbanized environments, similar to what you had in New York, similar to what you had in LA. We have that here in the UK. And those people have connected and taken taken it on. But even people like Craig David, as you said, they hit, but they didn't have the support to really go, you know? Right, because um, if you listen to You Got Me by The Roots and Erica Badu, if you listen to the end of that record, the drum yeah. patterns and the breakdown kind of sounds very two-step-ish. Wicked. And two-step, as we call it, is like a rare groove kind of R&B vibe, you know? Mm. That's a straight up British export, 100%. Yeah. yeah, and then another person who I thought should have exploded was Miss Dynamite. I thought she was dope i thought mystique was was dope there's a lot of great acts from the uk that would have benefited let's say if an american label had international talent scout and say hey find me the hottest act in this country and sign them and that's how ace of bass exploded in america where they had a single deal at arista and once the single took off here clive was like okay we're gonna sign them to a u.s deal the sign exploded became the biggest single of 94 and then the rest is history seal exploded over here and we can go Absolutely. down the list of a yeah. lot of the uk artists that ended up exploding over here in the states and look you know we some of the artists you talk about they never really came back to the uk somebody like seal once he had done his hit with like uh was it adamski here 
uh, and they blew. When Seal hit, you know, especially years later when he, he hit with Kiss from the Rose, I mean, Seal is just in America now. I remember some two beautiful women that I went to college with, which was um, uh, the girls from Floetry, you know. They started here in the UK and they were on the poetry circuit. And at some point they realized, you know what? I'm leaving. And when they left and when they hit, I think they hit, uh, was it Jazzy Jeff and Hidden Beat? Yeah, in Philly. So they were a part of that whole Neo Soul movement up in Philly with the Roots and Jill Scott. It went boom. And those women never came back. I mean, Natalie's back now, but that's where they hit because Floetry wouldn't have really taken off in the UK. Not because they weren't good, but because the British record industry wouldn't have recognized it. Right. And then with the British record industry, um, the Spice Girls, I mean, huge <laughs> deal. And nobody expected when they came to the US that they were going to be the ones to single handedly bring pop back in America because in America before Spice Girls, it was grunge and alternative because everybody was like, oh, we're tired of new kids on the block. We don't want to hear nothing poppy. And Dr. Yeah. Dre and Snoop and everything out of LA was bubbling. So when the Spice Girls hit in America with Wannabe, it was like, okay, maybe there's room for pop music on the radio again. And then you have Hanson and then Bashy Boys, Instinct 5 and all the pop acts started to come out of the woodworks and Robin took off over here in America as well. Who? Swedish, Swedish. Swedish, that whole Max Martin, Dennis Pop sound, and 3T, when they dropped the Brotherhood album, when they had yeah. Gotta Be You, when I first heard that record, I was like, early Backstreet Boys, early in sync, And it was surprising to me that that album didn't do as well in America like it did over in Europe. And I get great history lesson. I mean, there's a phenomenal songwriter. I know you mentioned Max Martin and those guys. But there's a black songwriter who Herbie. was behind. There we go, Herbie. Herbie wrote some of the key songs for Backstreet Boys. And we went out to, uh, I think it was Denmark, to, to see Herbie. And we chilled with him for a couple of days. And a lot of people don't know the influence that writer had on that sound. He sold millions of albums, millions. Yeah, definitely millions, you know, because everybody, when we think of that era of pop music, we tend to think of Max Martin and Dennis Pop. But like you stated, Herbie, Paid, played a hand in pretty much all of those records that we I know heard. and that we love. And did you guys get Eric Clapton's blessing when you guys covered Wonderful Tonight? And then what was his thoughts on the cover? I mean, we didn't actually hear from him. We heard through the grapevine that he had heard it and he was okay, but that was a very controversial move for us. When we recorded that song, you know, there was a lot of uh, people who were upset that we had dared to sing an Eric Clapton song. And we also changed the lyric at that time from blonde hair to brown hair because most of our girlfriends most of our parents had brown hair right so or black hair and uh you know people thought we you know some blasphemous thing we had done so our fans loved it it really helped us again to hit a wider demographic but some of the real staunch eric clapton fans for some reason lost their minds and said why are they doing this music not recognizing that eric clapton's music comes from rock and roll which actually comes from black music it's yeah nonsense. yeah because if you pretty much look <laughs> at it like clapton boy george george michael yeah. adele Smith, phil collins the beatles yeah. all Got, took their cues from U.S. R&B and with the Northern Soul movement, it's just the U.K.'s version of what Motown was doing. And if you ask any of them in an interview, to this day you speak to Paul McCartney, to this day you speak to any of those people you've mentioned, they will always reference people like Little Richard, da-da-da-da-da. They will always say, you know, we heard the sound, we heard James Brown's sound, we heard Little Richard, we heard uh, Benny King, and those were the people that we said, right, we want to replicate this. Yeah, and that was amazing because when I saw George Michael's documentary that he did before he passed, when uh, Faith exploded in America, it was the first album by a white artist to go number one on the R&B charts here. He was getting airplay on R&B radio, on BET, Video Soul, and when he won two American Music Awards for Best R&B Album and Artist, a lot of Black artists at the time felt like, hey, Bobby Brown and Keith Sweat are doing this, but George Michael is winning this, and he kind of caught some flack for that, which is why he released the Listen Without Prejudice album after that, because he couldn't understand why here in the States it was such a big deal. Well, music is music, but we tend to look at it by you're white, you're black, this is why you're having more success as to these artists is only having minimum success. Because if you're a pop, you're going to get yeah. more backing. Because when I interviewed Danny Wood from New Kids on the Block, they were put together primarily to be an R&B counterpart to New Edition. But once the pop label started to get a hold and say, hey, we can make more money, we're going to ditch the R&B marketing strategy and push you straight pop. 
Listen, this is the history, Jarrell, and, and this is why your show is so important. New Kids on the Block, the management behind them, Maurice, was a black man. Dick and, whole, and their whole setup, right? The whole camp I, was black. The whole camp. Listen, when I first met, um, when I first met NSYNC, and this is a real story, we were doing a show in the UK, I think it was at Wembley Arena. I saw four or five black security dudes black tour managers, black van drive, everybody was black. And the only people in their entourage who were white was NSYNC. And then I, I realized, oh my gosh, new kids on the block, NSYNC. It's, they're replicating the same model. They understand what they're doing. And listen, it's not about race because you just, well, it is about race, but when you let music speak, when you just reference George Michael, you think of George Michael and Aretha Franklin. That is the sweet spot of music. When we just remove the issue about race and we say, who's good enough to sing together, right? Right. But... There is something, even if we fast forward to somebody like Justin Timberlake, if you go and see Justin live, 95% of his band are black, if not 100% are black. He's so from that, Memphis, Tennessee. So he knows, the same way most people know, that when you're going out on the stage, there's something that these musicians bring that brings Timberland's music alive for Justin. And you often will see, apart from Justin and maybe some of his dancers, the entire sound is coming from black musicians who come from the church. Mm. Yeah, definitely that stars out in the church and everything else there. So you guys cover After the Love is Gone by Earth, Wind & Fire off the sophomore yeah. album. And you did work with Tim and Bob on the... So what was it like working with Tim and Bob? Tim and Bob were phenomenal because they they they, they uh, produced Ghetto Romance, which was written by Joe Thomas for us. Um, and, and that was incredible. Um, yeah, really, really great um, producers. And at the same time, we got to work with, oh, please let me recall his name. Manuel, he wrote on Usher's first album, a lot of the stuff that was done in Atlanta, Manu Manuel something, Manuel Seal, maybe I think his name was. But we got to work with him as a songwriter. Um, and we got to work with some other American producers. So we worked with some really top people and it's, yeah, great journey, great journey. Okay, now who were some of the acts that you ended up going out on the road with and touring? Oh, loads. So as I said, NSYNC, um, uh, we also did a show in front of Michael Jackson one day. We toured with Mariah Carey. We were her support around around Europe and the UK. Um, we did stuff with Boyzone. Um, we did stuff with what other American artists? Oh my God! Early in the day, High Five, Low Key. Do you remember those bands? Yeah, 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 yeah. We supported High Five and Low Key in the UK. We supported the Queen, Aaliyah. We opened up for Aaliyah in London, which was amazing. Um, so yeah, we we did some incredible shows. Now, did you all do any um, touring with Spice Girls or crisscross the same tour path? With Spice Girls? Definitely cross the same paths. And as you know, one of us is uh, Jade, is um, uh, engaged to Emma and has been with her for over 20 years and they have two beautiful children. Um, uh, we crossed paths, but we, I don't think we actually did shows together, but I do remember us crossing paths. How definitely. about um, All Saints? Oh yeah, we definitely did shows of All Saints. Uh, uh, so Shazney, Mel uh, and, and the Appleton sisters we did shows with them and they were great and they're still, you know, we still see them out now and they're still really blessed and we still have great uh, reminiscing moments How about um, Eternal? Eternal, 100% in 2015 we did the big reunion which was Damage, uh, Eternal uh, God 911 I think 5, yeah so again we, we, we've been around Eternal over the past few years for sure Yeah yeah, when I saw that big reunion show, when I saw you guys, 911 and 5, I had yeah. noticed it was the four you guys, because original damage was five with Corey, and you guys had meeting with Corey. Was there a falling out with Corey, with him wanting to disperse, separate himself from you guys, and how's the relationship now since it's been years removed since, since that? Are everybody still on good terms, or is it more of a hit, hit and miss with Corey? So like with any friendship group, it doesn't change when you're a band. Like with any friendship group or any brotherhood, people you went to university with, college with, whatever, you, you are together at some points in your life and there are different seasons. 
So uh, with Corey, we, we, as a band, we disbanded, you know, in early 2000, 2002, 2003, we disbanded. 2010, we came back to, came back and got together. Corey was part of that reformation. We did shows together. And for whatever reason, things just didn't work out. He came back together for the big reunion show. Again, things didn't work out at that time. Um, and he's blessed. Like, he's married. He has children. He lives in the States. And to my knowledge, he's blessed. And the four of us are blessed doing what we're doing. All right. That's that's a good way to put it. Now, we mentioned Eternal earlier. For those of you that don't know, Eternal was put together to be the UK's version of En Vogue. It was originally a foursome. Then one of the original members left. It became a threesome. And they ended up doing <laughs> Angel of Mine before Monica covered it and made it an international smash. Yes. Incredible. I, again, Jarrell, your history is just so on point. It, it's so nice that somebody takes the time to uncover these gems because this is lost information. If people don't research this stuff, it gets lost. So, yeah, Eternal, again, they were, you know, a leading female band in the UK. Really strong powerhouse vocal vocals from um, uh, Esther, you know, Esther, phenomenal singer. Um, and they did really great things. They're really, really great things. Yeah. Right. Now with take that back to their phenomenon, do you think that they really want to embrace R&B a little bit more or was kind of steered more towards the pop realm by Nigel Martin Smith? I think they were steered straight into the pop. I mean, their first song that came out, it was more kind of poppy house. Um, and I, th I think they were aimed more so at the gay market initially. Um, and then the young girls started getting interested. They had some great songwriters coming around them as well. Uh, we know that Gary was a central songwriter to, to their stuff. And I love Take That. I, I, I loved them at that time because some of their songs really resonated with me. And when they reformed, you know, maybe five or six years ago, a bit longer, their run since then has been consistent and really great music. So they're, they're a great band. Yeah, because the Nobody Else album, when I first heard Shore, I was like, that should have worked in America because it kind of has that Madonna Bedtime Stories vibe to it. Absolutely, yeah. No, great, great band. They have a lot of backing from the media, a lot of backing from the industry and the test, you know, the, the truth, the, not the test, the, the evidence is there that with the backing they had, they went on sold tens of millions, right. you know. Right. And can you tell for some of us that may not be familiar with UK pop, how important Stock, Aiken and Waterman was to the UK sound with Caliban No, Rick Ashley, Mel and Kim, so on and so forth? Oh, yeah. No, legendary producers. I mean, you know, for us, that was the 80s and we really hit our stride in the 90s, early 2000s. So we didn't really engage with that sound. But as you've just mentioned, all of the bands that came through that 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 production house had huge hits. And, you know, there are production houses globally. We touched on the Max Martin guys already. You know, uh, if you think about in America, people like Jam and Lewis um, or, or, or did you, did, is that? Yeah, I said the right names. Yeah, those, those guys. If you think about what Teddy Riley's achieved, if you think about what was going on uh, through Bad Boy and what Diddy was doing <clears throat> and um, the hit makers. I mean, there are these production houses that are just phenomenal what they do. And then you can go back to, you know, the, the Motown sound and, and think of the chief songwriters and, and the sound they created. They're historically have always been these production houses and Stop Aching and Waterman are just along in that in that lineage of people who know how to make a record man. Right, and Pete Waterman was on Pop Idol, which got imported over here to America for American Idol. And I think the one thing that UK artists do, I think, better than US acts, you all have an ear and a sensibility for pop. Because when I first heard Forever, I was like, that would have been played on AC radio here in America. Because to me, it sounded something where if I had to put an American group to like cover it, it for me, it would be Color Me Bad. Well, it was it was it was featured in a film with uh, Halle Berry. I think the film was called Babe or something like that. Baps. Baps. Thank you so much. So forever featured in Baps. And I yeah, I agree. I agree. To this day, had it had a little bit more of a push and some marketing, I think forever could have been a huge hit in America. for Sure. Mm, definitely that. So what led you to your current path now with you working with at-risk youth and wanting to get into that. And the question that I have from my wife, who's a social worker, she wants to know, are you seeing the same trends like in America where absenteeism in the home with the dads and the education system not being set up in the kids' favor as to why there are more at-risk youth in the UK, like in, like in America? 
Okay, so I got into this industry, uh, I call it a calling. Uh, You know, when I came back from touring, I came back to the area that I lived in. My friends had gone one of three ways. They were doing fantastically well, had jobs, had families. Some were no longer alive because they had been murdered through crime. And some were, uh, had a relationship with the criminal justice system where they were in and out of prison at various different times. And I realized that I had been blessed to travel the world and I wanted to work with children and let them know that the world was bigger than their local area. So I dedicated the last 15 years, I did my undergrad, did my master's, really understood the theory of why children offend. Um, Also looking at uh, structural and systemic considerations, which contribute to offending, not just you know, absenteeism within the home, not just education, but there is a system in place which unfortunately contributes to some children. Um, it, it, it exacerbates the behavior of some children, which then leads them to go on to offend. And then there are the mental health conditions with some children, depending on what they've witnessed at home, what they've seen, how they've been abused emotionally, physically, psychologically, etc., etc. So the issue is far bigger than just the agency and the behavior of the child. You have to look at how you locate the child within the system. When I got a grip of all this stuff, I just went, I'm down. And I just want to use my my network, my access and my life to try and better the lives of children and young adults. So that's what we do. Okay. And how did the, the Liminality Group form? And what are some of your outreach programs that you do for the youth in and around uh, the UK? So our primary task is to change the trajectory of children who are most at risk. So that's a lot of early intervention, prevention work. We target children specifically who have intergenerational offending within their families, children who are known to social services, known to the police, children who are excluded from school. And we provide uh, what we call psychologically informed interventions within the school or within the community to try and deter those children away from crime. The other side of our organisation Sorry, the other side of my organisation, we work in prison with youth uh, between the age of 12 to 18 who have been sentenced to anything from robbery right through to murder. And again, we provide psychologically informed interventions to challenge the thinking and behaviour whilst helping them to understand the systemic and structural issues which contribute to their offending. We provide access to employment and education when they come home. And we do a lot of training with prison staff, social workers, teachers, parents. So everybody has what we call a whole system approach in trying to prevent children uh, further offending. And do you know the rate of recidivism of people that gets in the program and the percentage of those, you know, going back into incarceration or those that's turned the corner and living successful, productive lives as citizens? Absolutely. So 70% of children within the United Kingdom who are released from custody will reoffend within 12 months. Within the first year, 70% of children will reoffend. Children that have come through our program were able to evidence over a two-year period, 60% of them had not reoffended. So if you take 60% from one year and you take 60% from another year and you combine that, although that exceeds 100%, we're able to evidence that 60% of our children do not reoffend within an 18-month period in comparison to the 70% that reoffend within one year. Within the schools we work in, 90% of the children that we work with through our interventions stay within their school or they are placed within another school, but they're not excluded. We know that when children are excluded, it increases their likelihood of going on to offend because they're placed in alternative provisions, which we call alternative provisions or pupil referral units, and then they're one step away from prison. In America, you call it the school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. So we try to break that, um, that, that trajectory and that cycle by working with children. As I said, 90% of the children we work with, which can be up to three, 400 children a year, 90% of those will stay within mainstream school, which prevents them going in. The, the prison system. Yeah, because for me being a former educator, I worked special ed for about three years. So I saw a lot of repeating kids constantly going into ISS or being with the school resource officer and kind of saying like, oh, if you got a kid that's constantly going to ISS every week, you know, yeah. more than likely the chances of them possibly going to the pen is going to be very high because you, if they're getting suspended for three days or a week at a time, then thinking what that leads. And then I was looking at the British show Top Boy 
and seeing how you're seeing a lot of kids out on the street hustling, you know, selling whatever, doing whatever. And it's almost kind of like the same thing in America, in America, you know, you have environmental factors, genetic factors, you don't have resources as far as jobs and mom may not have the money to pay the electric bill so that little Johnny can do his homework. Cause we're seeing with COVID here in the States that if you don't have access to Wi-Fi or money, then you're pretty much shut out because we have kids that are doing their homework in the McDonald's parking lot because that's the only place where uh, they can get Wi-Fi. And I've seen images of that and that's replicated in the UK. COVID has caught people out uh, in all industries, but the most vulnerable from adults to children are the ones who, again, will be impacted further. So, yeah, I mean, we we try and do, we are a small organization, but we have a lot of reach and we've worked with, you know, a good few thousand children in my career and um, we have some great outcomes, but at the same time, we, we do have some distressing times as well. We've lost children who have been murdered. We have children who have gone to prison for killing other children. Um, so, you know, we it swings and roundabouts but generally most of the children we work with do well now are the court systems in the uk more harsh to students people of color like how it is in america where you just get the book thrown at you and have sentences be trumped up and it's not fair because like i said it wasn't until babylon where i saw i was like okay racism is not an american problem it's a worldwide problem and it's a big issue in the UK, and I was just surprised by that. It's a global issue. I mean, in America, in 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 the UK, we are um, really impacted by this term called disproportionality, which basically uh, we recognise in the UK that there are more children who are Black, Asian, or from smaller ethnic groups who are overrepresented in mental health institutions, in prison institutions, in school exclusions. So, one hundred percent, we can draw parallels. But I mean, the American the American context is is different, not slightly. It's hugely different because you have a history which goes back to slavery of the incarceration of individuals. And also your prisons are privatized, which means there is a profit put before the welfare and care of individuals. In the UK, we do have private run prisons and institutions, but we still have a lot which is held within Her Majesty's estate, so by the queen effectively, paid for by the public, etc. So there's still a balance between welfare, rehabilitation, therapeutic interventions, whilst looking at the loss of liberty to put people in custody and punish them. In America, for what I see, you know, you have the highest incarceration rate of black men per capita than anywhere else in the world. It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because when you look at the prison industrial complex here in the States, you know, they eliminated a lot of the learning how to do a trade programs in prison so that when prisoners can come out, they could be successfully rehabilitated or having them get their degrees while in prison. So when you send them back out and when they have to go on probation you like i have nowhere to live because i can't get an apartment because i got a record i can't get no loans to start a business to go to school because i got a record i can't get no job because they got or have you been convicted of a felony i can't work so you're expecting me to try to make a miracle out of a molehill and you're just expecting me to go back and reoffend because it's making you this now for me i mean we specialize in working with children And what I've always been shocked at in America is how a child can be sentenced to life without parole in some states when a child can just be locked away completely. And, um, you know, thankfully in the United Kingdom, you know, although we are moving towards having whole life orders for the 18 plus population in the United Kingdom, there is generally a release date for children. So they know when they're coming home. Um, But as I said, it's a different model. But what we do have in, in parallel to you guys is the overrepresentation of people of color within the prison system, mental health system, school exclusions, etc. And we're constantly working to challenge that. Right. And that goes with systemic change, you know, invest in these neighborhoods that's been under-resourced, give people tools so that they can get jobs and have the means to say, do I want to not work today because I don't have no one to babysit my kids? Jarrell, it's not, it's not, it's not, uh, you know, it's not, it's not science. It doesn't need to be so complicated and technical, but we live in a capitalist system and because of capitalism, there has to be people who have and people who don't. But I believe that when it comes to children, which is why my organization specializes in working with children, for humans, we should be trying to make the lives of children better. I agree. Whether 
spend or not. So that's where we place our energy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now back to music for a little bit. Did you guys ever do any tours or cross paths with Blue or Another Level? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We worked with definitely both bands uh, and both the people that we still bump into to this day. Uh, in terms of another level, I think Wayne lives out in America. I know Dane is here and we've seen Dane around and done some shows with him. Um, and in terms of Blue, we see those guys. We did the big reunion in 2015 with those guys. And um, yeah, both bands we've toured with. Yeah, another level. They covered Silk's Freak Me and then they had Jay-Z do a guest verse on Alone No More. Eight. Blue covered Too Close by Next. And I thought yep. another group that was really interesting that came out of that grind movement that I thought was really dope was uh, So Solid Crew. <laughs> that was a defining watershed moment. And yeah, they're an incredible band. And um, we, again, were able to see that as it was happening, see it hit number one and really change the the, the landscape. Mm -hmm. So when you take a look back at Damage Legacy and you guys are still out and about touring and hopefully once COVID lifts, guys be back out at the O2 Arena, Wembley, whatever, what have you, knocking them dead. So what do you think Damage Legacy is and what can we expect next from the four of you? So I'll start with the lot, the end part of the question. What you can expect is more touring, more shows. There's no, there's no plans to make new music. We're still benefiting from our back catalogue and uh, we still do shows and we're still really comfortable with that. We have families and we dedicate just enough time to music to still be able to live and, and you know, put our families first. I think our legacy will be tied into some of the names you've mentioned earlier. Misha Paris, Soul to Soul, uh, Donnie, um, you know, most uh, the export, the exportation of black British music into the, into America. And if you think about black, black British music in the UK, you will not be able to describe that story without saying damage. And that's a phenomenal thing that we've achieved. Mm -hmm. And we forgot to mention that Tim Westwood got his start on some of those underground pirate stations. He did. And uh, he's still going. I mean, I don't have many good things to say about that gentleman, unfortunately. So we'll leave it there. So we'll but... leave it there. We're going to leave it with the niceties. If you ain't got nothing nice to say, don't say it at all. Right. <laughs> all right. So um, how can people get involved with TLG um, if they want to know more or possibly make donations? Yeah, I mean, you can go to our website which is www.tlguk.co.uk and you'll see a full synopsis of what we do. And um, yeah, you can hit us up and get in touch or just follow our work on uh, Instagram, on Twitter. Um, you'll find it again, the LGUK. But if you go to our website, you'll get links to all of our social handles. All right. And any shout outs you want to give before we wrap this interview and also plug your social media? Well, shout out to KG, 100% for making a connection between you and I. Um, shout out to you for doing your research. It's always great to sit with somebody who has uh, taken time and invested in understanding who they're going to talk to. So I really appreciate that. And thank you for having me on. Um, shout out to the guys in Damage, 100%. Um, to my family, my friends, um, and then to my team, uh, what we're doing with TLG, the Liminality Group. And once again, Log on to www.tlguk.co.uk and you can find out about what we do. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. You can catch this interview on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash j5, and also the audio version on wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, wherever. Look it up, beyond the album cover, people. And Andre Harriet from Damage and Youth Worker, Youth Advocate at TLG. Thank you so very much, brother, for coming on. Bless you, my man. Thank you. All right.